Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, broadcasting from our studios in the metro Washington, D.C. area. And on today's show, the father of Spanish cooking in the U.K., Chef Jose Pizarro, stops by to share his journey from Spain to England and some of his stories in his acclaimed semi-biographical cookbook of sorts, Seasonal Spanish Food. Then you know her as Katie Logan from the CBS daytime drama The Bold and the Beautiful. Two-time Emmy Award-winning actress Heather Tom joins us to talk about her career and higher calling as an activist and humanitarian on the world stage. And finally, cross-cultural communications consultant Larry Wino shares some pointers on how to be an effective communicator when dealing with cultures and people from foreign lands. As always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. And of course, we love seeing you guys here every week, but we certainly enjoy catching up with you on a daily basis through our social networks at Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and others. And of course, you know, sharing our show with you on your mobile device anywhere you are in the world. And you can sign up for those things and learn more about them at our website, worldfootprints.com. Known throughout the United Kingdom as the father of Spanish cooking, Jose Pizarro had earlier aspirations of becoming a dental technician. However, he soon realized that his love of food was greater than his love of dentistry, and he began on a path that took him throughout Spain to the UK, where he has lived for the last 11 years. Jose has appeared on BBC One's Saturday Kitchen and UK TV Foods Market Kitchen, and his first book, Seasonal Spanish Food, was published last fall to great critical acclaim. Jose, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you very much, Ian. When did you first discover your love for food? I think just when I was a child. You know, I'm coming from a, from a little village uh, in a farm. And, uh, you know, I was surrounded from, from food, from fresh food, from uh, vegetables to, to beef, you know. Since then, I think I started loving food. Hmm. Since I was really, really small, really child. Mm-hmm. Now, you made quite a shift there from focusing on a career in dentistry to becoming a, uh, a chef. Tell us what, what, what your process was for making that transition from, from dentistry to your passion and now your life. Because I always, I wanted, I always loved food, but I, no, I don't have any, um, my father, any of my family was uh, in the catering in industry and uh, I finished my, my, my studies and then uh, I, I was waiting for uh, for some job in Sevilla South Spain mm-hmm. and in the meantime I thought mm, I have like two or three months I, I really want to learn some some more cooking no and uh, I start my college and then I never stopped I never mm. went back to to my dentistry you grew up in a very small bil- village in Spain uh, called uh, Talavan, yeah, and which was our secret until now. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a place really filled with rich history and traditions, like uh, the tradition of La um, Mataza. And 
I'd love for you to share a little bit about your hometown and how it helps shape your style of, of cooking and, um, and really give our audience a sense of the importance of food because I understand that uh, back in the day there was a time that food was a very precious commodity and uh, from early on people learned to really treasure uh, food. Like I used to say, I'm coming from a village uh, very, very small, and uh, um, my family, like farm, um, the food was always around us, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the food always was fresh, came from the, from the vegetable garden to the table. Um, was uh, Spain, 40 years ago, you know, we went through a horrible time, and uh, the food was very, very, very important, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, the simplicity of the cooking is uh, was very important as well. You need to, you have to take all all the food and cook simple. Is the and because was uh, even was not many food around, you know, was not many. Quote, uh, how can I explain? It's so difficult to explain this to me. Food um, was scarce. Mm, say again. Food was very scarce. Yeah, as well, and um, and it was complicated. Really, it was really, really complicated to to get food, and um, you know, it's a. Uh, and my 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 style of cooking is that it's very, very simple, high quality ingredients, and put on the plate as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Nothing fancy, nothing. You know, the more important thing for me is flavor and texture. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, you know the the conquistadors. Though going back to perhaps your distant relative, <laughs> um, one of the uh, the important contributions they made to the history of uh, the culinary arts, food in Spain, is that they actually brought back a lot of uh, exotic food and. Um, uh, Talk a little bit about that and about the the guardianship that the monasteries had over these early vegetables and, and other foods. The thing is, uh, when they came from America, they bring uh, all the, the peppers, potatoes, tomatoes. That's completely uh, not, not at all in Spain. And uh, they bring all the products to the monks, yeah? mm. and they was keeping quite in secret. They, the monks, they start doing the pimenton de la vera, that is paprika, mm-hmm. and that was kept in secret, in secret until 200 years. You know, uh, the conquest bring quite, quite a lot uh, oh. important things to the culinary art in Spain. Wow. Yeah, and uh, all the area is surrounding with beautiful uh, houses. Uh, you know, where they smoke the paprika, the pimenton. It's a stunning area. It's beautiful. La Vera is in North Extremadura. Mm-hmm. It's a stunning. It's so incredible. Within the country of Spain, um, talk about some of the regional culinary differences and traditions. Like, for example, the uh, the festival that I mentioned earlier, um, La uh, Maraza, which is the pig slaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you really enjoyed that festival as a kid. It might... Uh, might not be so comfortable for children in the U.S. Uh, to experience, but that was that was a true celebration for you. The thing, la matanza, well, you say when we kill kill the animal. For us, uh, was the, we have to survive, and the, we have the poor, you know, the whole year, mm-hmm. you know, and was no like a pet. We love it. We love him. We love the animal, but it was food for us. And mm-hmm. we knew, since I was 
little child, I knew that animal is going to be my food for the whole year. You know, what's oh. your friend? But in the end, you know, we need to kill the animal for food. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like a party because you, you know, you celebrate the, 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 the animal in the end. You know, it was so important for us. Certainly. You know, and uh, we didn't see the, the animal. We, you know, we kill the animal, but in the best way that we, you know, for food. I know it sounds a bit, you know, difficult to, to understand for a, maybe American child, but for us it was just like, like normal. You know, we need food, and we need to to to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it in, and I understood in reading reading this story, it was a celebration of life, the life of uh, life of the pig, and but life of uh, the people as well. And and so I didn't want to, and uh, certainly didn't mean to imply that it was uh, some you know macabre uh, festival. It was really a a a, a celebration because yeah. food was scarce as we as yeah. we discussed earlier food was very scarce for you growing up mm. and um yeah absolutely it's like uh, like you say and uh, and the difference between different the di- the regions in Spain we are seventeen different regions mm-hmm. and I have to say it's seventeen different food mm. uh, from north where it's uh, normally quite cold to south when it's normally very hot um in north, people is, uh, prefer more uh, seafood, you know, cooking different way, like pan fry or, or grill. Mm-hmm. And then you go to south, for example, to Cadiz, and, and the people prefer more fried fish and, uh, and different way to cook. Um, I have to say, in Galicia, it's completely different than, the, than Valencia. Valencia is more paellas, and then uh, uh, Galicia is more vegetables and, again, fish, mm-hmm. you know. It's completely, completely different. And then you go to central Spain, where it's more uh, lamb, you know, uh, roasted, beef roast, uh, suckling pig, uh, goat, mm-hmm. and then it's beef as well in, in central Spain and north as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's completely, completely different. More stew in the central Spain as well, you know, a lot of beans, pulses, uh, the, the diversity that we have mm-hmm. is uh, unbelievable, mm. unbelievable. My next book is going to be about region in Spain. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have to, it's going to be ingredients from the regions, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's stunning, it's completely, completely, uh, and no well know in, uh, in, U- in UK. Mm-hmm. People need to understand more about regions in Spain and food from even single regions. Mm. Well, you know, and that's that's the one thing I love about your book. I was uh, reading it, spent some time last night and this morning reading it, and 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 I found myself, you know, wanting more. And not only the recipes, and I, I can't tell you how many recipes I saw in your book that I want to try, but I I loved your personal stories and and that's very unique to a lot of cookbooks i think it's so important people need to know what is behind a dish you know when you just uh, do a simple uh, gazpacho is a tomato soup you need to understand all the process and all the history behind that and you know it's so important for me uh, people understand the the, the, the the what is behind you know my history my family whatever mm-hmm. behind that dish and it's beautiful to have to sit in, because a cookery book, is, I don't think it's not just for people go there and see the recipes. Right. It's there and reading something more about the author, you know, uh, there's so many things behind. 
mm-hmm. people need to read and understand. You have uh, mentioned uh, that London has a wonderful selection of, of, of restaurants. Talk to us about how the restaurants, uh, the restaurant scene in London has changed over the years and how the influences from all over the world are now making London an exciting place for food. London is now, as you see, the difference between 11 years until now is completely it's amazing. Uh, the people go more out for dinner and people understand more the food. You, it's places for all around the world. Uh, you can have the more amazing Indian, the more amazing American uh, from all over the world. And, uh, you know, it's so exciting because if you can go, uh, you know, for breakfast to Spanish, lunch uh, to American on, and dinner then to, to, to Chinese. You know? And, um, of course, uh, some of them are very expensive. But another one is very, very, very good value, quality value. And uh, it's stunning. It's amazing. They do uh, really enjoy to be in that uh, city for, for, for a week and uh, try food for all around the world. Mm-hmm. And I know your your first trip here to Washington was uh, really enlightening too, in terms of just the excitement and the diversity of the restaurants here. Talk to us about uh, your impressions of our capital city. I just love it. I can't wait to go back. <laughs> <laughs> you can stay with us if you promise to cook a meal. <laughs> I love to buy gum. Uh, the thing, I, I've been America, all around America, and uh, I didn't have the opportunity to come here. And the impression has been amazing. People is so stunning, I have to say. All people have been very kind, very polite. Uh, uh, made, me, made me very, very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just very welcome. Very, very welcome people and and food and you know I can see Jose Andres is doing amazing job here. You know it's, uh, all the experience have been perfect, absolutely, absolutely mm. perfect. Mm-hmm. I have to say. Outside of London and outside of Spain, is there a place that you like to travel just for the food? Um, a, a place that you like to visit because of the culture in the food? It's uh, so many places. One of my favorite restaurants in Spain is uh, Arzac. It's in San Sebastian. Mm-hmm. And I travel. I can travel all around the world just to go there. Just, uh, he's the father of the Spanish cuisine. Oh. And uh, he's, he's doing the new cuisine, no? Nouvelle cuisine. Mm-hmm. But he stays with the roots, you know? His uh, simplicity and the quality on the place is stunning. I have to say, for me, it's the best restaurant in the world. In the United States, there's a growing movement to support local farmers and use sustainable and organic foods. And it's somewhat new to, uh, to this country, but it, it is growing. And I know in, uh, in the U.K., um, Prince Charles has been pushing organic, the growth of organic foods uh, for, for many years. But I'm wondering how this movement is uh, is um, being accepted in, in other places like Spain or other countries where you've traveled to? In Spain, it's coming as well. Um, but we have to say, we are, normally, we eat local and, uh, you know, uh, and organic. It's nothing that we know well, but it's, uh, we don't understand organic because we try always to be organic. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We don't have to go back. To mm-hmm. that, uh, because no, it's normal for us. 
in Spain. Yeah? And I think how it's so important all around the world, the chef and everyone needs to understand to eat organic, to eat farm, uh, and to buy locally. You know, I don't understand why people uh, buy, for example, uh, asparagus from Peru in Christmas time, when now in April, May, are the best asparagus in the world. In the UK, you know, uh, why people uh, spend so much money for something that's not really good? Yes. And uh, why the people don't wait? For me, so just wait for the season, and you have the best and the best price. Mm. Now, Jose and I were closing minutes with you. We know that uh, you've got some plans uh, that coincide with the 2012 Olympic Games in London to open your own restaurant. Talk to us about uh, what that future may hold for you and what we can look forward to when we come to London uh, in 2012. I plan in my open my I, I just uh, finished with my old company like two weeks ago. And um, and designing and planning my 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 own place. Um, I think it's going to happen in in a year time, but at the meantime, I'm researching for you know for the best local, the best the best site in uh, in London for myself. And uh, I want to do very very simple cuisine, very simple food. Uh, but uh, I want to do not just tapa. No, I want mm-hmm. to do some tapas and then some main course. Uh, mains where the people can go just for tapas if they want, or or they can start with some uh, little dishes, tapas, and then go for the main courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do a wine bar. Um, I think it's quite it's going to be quite interesting, We're quite quite interesting for the for the London life. Mm. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be good. It's going to be great. Well, we, lo- we look forward to, to testing. Uh, and if you need taste testers, <laughs> Ian and I, I are more than happy to fly. <laughs> I love to see you there for the opening. <laughs> that will be amazing. Anyway, we keep in post. Abs- you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and where you live in London, too. I mean, you are... Uh, uh, conveniently situated next to a wonderful market, and so you'll have at your disposal all these mm-hmm. these great ingredients that that you'll be using in your restaurant, your new restaurant. Yeah, for for me, it's so important to to live next to a market. You know, bring me my my memories, bring me to my hometown. Mm-hmm. You know, and my village. Uh, it's uh, you know, for me now, I just wake up in the morning. I'm going to I'm going to do my shopping for the day. Uh, I just go there with my friends on Saturday. We we have a coffee in the market. We buy the the food for later cooking in my place. Um, it's so important to have something uh, next to Absol- a market next to your house. You absolutely, uh, absolutely. It's the way to be. It's the way to be. It's the way I grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, go and choose the food that you are gonna have that day. My fridge normally is always empty. I have some milk and no more than that. Hmm. You know, I try to buy local and uh, in the same day. Mm-hmm. Jose, um, what is the website where people can go to learn more about you and, and certainly uh, purchase your new book, Seasonal Spanish Food, which uh, is highly recommended uh, in the Fitzpatrick household? Um, do you have a website? Yeah, I have a website. It's www.josepizarro.co.uk. Oh, dot com, sorry, dot com. <laughs> I'm, I'm working in the dot co.uk. Dot com, dot uk, okay. Dot com, Jose Pizarro, 
Com. Okay. Lovely. Thank you so much, Jose Pizarro, author of Seasonal Spanish Food and better known as the father of Spanish cooking in the UK. Muchas gracias para joining us today. Muchas gracias, amigo. Thank you very much, my friend. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, actress Heather Tom takes a break from the set of The Bold and the Beautiful to talk about her travels and humanitarian causes as World Footprints Radio continues. Bookkeeper, I am ashamed. I'm a black from the Six Gun Nation. I encourage you to tune into World Footprints Radio and come out to Blackfoot Crossing Historical Park in southern Alberta to experience the Blackfoot people and culture. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Hi, my name is Elaine, and I'm from California, and I like World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Heather Tom is a two-time Emmy Award-winning actress who is known these days for her role as Katie Logan on the CBS daytime drama The Bold and the Beautiful. Heather began acting at the tender age of two, and she's been on many roles, uh, television and movie theaters and live stage, but she embraces an even bigger role on the world stage as an activist and humanitarian, and we're very pleased to welcome her to our show. Hi, Heather. Hey, how are you? Good, thank you. First, I want to, I want to, I know you have a birthday coming up, so I just want to extend a happy early, uh, early happy birthday wish to you. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> you've actually, you've been acting your entire life, and you've had such incredible success and amazing journey. Talk a little bit about your journey from the time you were two to, uh, to now. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we uh, my family, um, we're all in the business, my brother and sister act as well, um, and we started in Chicago doing uh, commercials and modeling and things like that, and we came out to Los Angeles, uh, when I was 13, and my brother and sister were, um, 11, they're twins, and we planned on coming out for three weeks, and we never went home, mm. so, <laughs> um, yeah, we've been pretty lucky, I guess, um, having pretty consistent work, and, um, you know, I've been on daytime now for, gosh, 20 years. I don't <laughs> insane to even say that. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been a nice ride. Yeah, but, I mean, what a blessing because you've worked consistently that, that whole time, and that doesn't, that doesn't happen to everybody. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, was there a time that you ever thought about switching gears? Um, you know, I mean, you, you, you were so committed. The stories that I've read about, you're so committed. You paid for your acting classes out of the money you earned from your job at a cookie shop, which I think is so <laughs> sweet. <laughs> Yeah, I we we always um, you know it was instilled in us at a very young age to have a, a really strong work ethic, and even when we were working, we always had regular jobs um, because we know that this business is really unpredictable, and 
um, you know, hopefully I don't have to go back to working at the cookie store. But uh, <laughs> um, I think that, you know, my, my mother really wanted us to make sure that we, we knew that, you know, work is important and that's what you have to do in life to get by. See, it's those Midwest values, I say. It is. <laughs> Good Midwest, Midwest values. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Heather, we know you've been on shows like Ugly Betty and Monk and in several feature films on talk shows and the stage. Has there been a favorite role thus far, uh, ones that have challenged you and your uh, acting skills? You know, I, I really love daytime. I do. I, I think it's a really great um, medium for, for an actor. You get to play a character for many, many years. You get to play um, every aspect of this character. Um, in, in a lot of respects, um, you know, our characters have lives of their own. They, you know, they get married and have children and grow old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think, um, you know, I, I find that really exciting because every day we're doing something different and um, every day we're, we're seeing, you know, what path this, the character is taking. And, and I, that, as an actor, I find that really exciting. Now, you know, we mentioned at the top of the uh, the hour, you were um, you also have experience on the stage. You've been on, uh, you know, Broadway and and um, and performing it before a live audience is an inc- you know, completely different animal. And I'm just wondering if that experience prepared you for your 2004 speaking engagement at the Democratic <laughs> National Convention, because public speaking is a fear and a totally different animal altogether. Yeah, and, and it, I wasn't actually at the convention. I was at the Planned Parenthood. Ah, okay. Which <laughs> is a little different. It was very crowded, but not quite that crowded, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> just to clarify. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I have done a lot of um, live theater, and I, and I do enjoy that a lot. I don't know that I would really compare it, though, to public speaking because it's kind of a it, – it's very different to stand up on stage and be a character. Mm-hmm. Um and then stand up on stage in front of people um, and and be yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was definitely something that uh, I had to get used to. And um, you know, I did. I, I have done a lot of speaking for Planned Parenthood. I, I worked for Kerry in two thousand and four, and then I worked for uh, Hillary in two thousand and eight, and then uh, Obama in two thousand and eight. So um, you know, it, it is it is a totally different animal to get up in front of people and. Um, and you know, speak from your experiences and your heart, and be just you up there. It's a, it's very vulnerable, mm-hmm. and I I really do admire people that can can do it. You know, in, in a in a real way. Um, you know, really connect with with their audience. Um, you know, in a real personal way. Heather, I know that you are very committed to uh, uh, the fight against AIDS, and uh, you're involved in a number of service organizations working working with uh, folks who are afflicted with that. Talk to us about some of uh, some of your work there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, HIV um, has certainly touched my life, um, and I think, you know, if we're living in this world, we, we you know, HIV touches all of us in, in, in a, you know, in some in abstract ways, some in, in direct ways. And, sure. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've, Focused so much on on the international, um, you know, AIDS crisis, and and that's still very very important. AIDS in Africa and around the world, and and, and things of that sort. But we can't forget that we've got um, a huge problem still right here at home. Right. And um, and you know we've developed lots and lots of really great drugs um, because of our efforts, 
you know, over the over you know the decades, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, since the eighties. But there's still a lot of work to do, and um, you know, really, what what we want to do is make sure that the focus um, remains here at home, and that the funding is there for research, and um, so that the funding is there also to help people who are um, afflicted with HIV right now. Um, I know that um, you know ADEP in our in California has been you know massively underfunded, and right now there's a wait list of 4,000 people who um, are waiting for services, and um, you know that's just, I, in my opinion, in this country, that's just inexcusable, and we really have to make sure that our you know our government pays attention to the needs of people right here at home. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you've been to uh, to our neck of the woods, uh, D.C., to, to, you know, lobby Congress on behalf of, um, you know, Planned Parenthood and, and, and the other organizations you, you've, um, you know, you're involved with. What what do you think the challenge the roadblocks are and the, the the challenges? I mean, funding is you know a no brainer. Funding is always a challenge um, in in moving some of these uh, efforts forward. But but what types of roadblocks have you seen here, and and, and what do you want to see happen and, and and change in the near future? Um, well, I mean, as far as Planned Parenthood goes, I you know I, I think that you know the roadblocks are. <laughs> Are you know obvious and they, it starts with A and it ends with N and it rhymes with Schmorshen and um, <laughs> <laughs> they said I don't remember what, what was that knocked up which is one of my favorite parts of that movie anyway mm-hmm. um, and I think that's you know that's obviously a big robot for a lot of people and mm-hmm. um, you know and I think that um, the challenge for Planned Parenthood and other family planning organizations is to get beyond that big red letter mm-hmm. um, and and talk about family planning in a real way and talk about choice in a real way, which includes, you know, everything from, you know, access to contraception to medically accurate sex education to um, access to gynecological, you know, exams and um, pre- and postnatal care and breast exams and cervical cancer exams. And, you know, reproductive health is such a huge um it's a big tent, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I and I think that um, you know what I love about Planned Parenthood the most is that the the facilities are in areas where they service women where this is really the, where they're getting the the major part of their their health care and most of these women are um, and and children and men also go to these facilities and most of them are uninsured. Um, this is where they this is where their primary health care takes place and I think that should really be the focus of, of family planning. And, you know, yes, I, you know, I am pro-choice and I, you know, I support access to abortion, but there's so, I, I support making abortions rare and, um, you know, ho- and hopefully in the future maybe even unnecessary because we have so much access to information and to services that prevent unwanted pregnancy. And I, I mean, it sounds like you know the 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 distribution of that 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 information. I mean, it, it sounds like the, the you know one of the key focus areas is on education because it's not a black or white um, problem. It's not you know you 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 do this or, or or that. You know you have two choices. It's really about educating people on making informed decisions or, or preempting, um, you know, the hard decisions that, that, that some people may have to, to choose later on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's proven over and over and over again that when, um, you know, women and men are given 
the information and access to the services that they need to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Unwanted pregnancy doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, like, when you look at countries around the world who have very early, um, you know, sexual health education programs that they even start about talking about bodies and things like that, even in preschool, not that they're talking about sex in preschool, but they're talking, they're getting people aware of, of their bodies and, 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 you know, so that, you know, people respect their bodies and, and understand how they function in a real way. And it's, you know, suddenly, you know, there, there are instances of unwanted pregnancy and abortion rates are super, super low. And so I think it just makes sense to give people as much information as you can and also to make sure that they have access to the resources that they need so that they can, you know, make informed decisions about their sexual health. Right. And, you know, I, I know you mentioned, you know, that, that the focus really needs to, that there needs to be more attention paid to uh, what's happening at home. But I'm just curious if you've traveled um, for these, uh, any of these organizations. I know you travel for the show because I've, I've seen the, um, my, my husband is, uh, he's, he's become by default a, a Y&R and B&B <laughs> fan because we work, we work with the show on during the day. Um, but uh, it's always the background, you know, the background uh, uh, sounds and, and what have you. But um, uh is there a destination that you've traveled to either in support of uh, of these organizations or, you know, for the show that's been very transformative for you? Um, well, I mean, I, like I've, I've done most of my advocacy work in the States, um, you know, traveling for Planned Parenthood really wherever they want me to go someplace. Um, but the places that I have been that I see, you, you know, where, you know, where it's such a stark um slap in the face when it comes to um, the kind of resources that are needed. I've been, I've been all over Africa, and, uh, you know, it's just amazing how much they need <laughs> over there. And, and, you know, when you go to a, a, you know, a women's health facility over there, it truly is the only facility in, you know, miles and miles and miles around. And, um, it's servicing an entire community, and it's not just the you know a reproductive health facility. It's you know it's for everything, and you know and I think that that does make us feel it makes me feel like the problems that we have here are really um, something that we can solve and something that we have you know the means to solve if we have the political will to solve. <laughs> sure. And so that you know in some respects it seems like the political will should be the easy part and. Hopefully, you know, we can, um, you know, keep continuing to move forward in a positive way. Now, Heather, with such a busy schedule, you've got to find time to recharge your batteries. Are there places that you like to go to around the world that uh, help you accomplish just that? Well, I, I just got back from Thailand. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was, I, I've never been there before. Um, my sister had been there several times, and um, my best friend was over there for business, and he's like, why don't you come meet me? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> no <laughs> so arm I twisting. I a 17-hour flight, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and we, we spent a couple of days in Bangkok, and then we went to Phuket, and mm. that definitely um, recharged my batteries. It was great. We got massages every day. And, <laughs> um, kind of, we ate our way through Thailand. I, we were just gluttonous. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that, I, I love those types of trips, you know, and I mean, this, oh my gosh, in, in Thailand, uh, how is the weather there? Because I've been there in March and it was super hot in March. How was it for it you? It was super hot. Um, it was definitely hot. It was the rainy season. So like these massive, crazy, violent rainstorms would come through and then they'd, they'd blow through and it'd be beautiful again. And it, But it was, yeah, it was very hot and very humid. Um, but you just kind of get used to it, and I don't know. We weren't doing a whole lot of, like, moving around. Yeah, <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. I'm glad you, you came back safely here. But, uh, yeah, but that, that, that's a beautiful country, and, and uh, certainly the food as well. I can, I can attest oh to God. that. Yeah. <laughs> what did you have? What was, like, one of your favorite things to, uh, to enjoy? Um, well, I'm a huge curry fan, and so we, we ate just curry everywhere we went. But I, I think the, the best thing we had um, was we had this whole red red snapper mm. that was like, I don't know if it was fried, and then the curry sauce was on top of it, but it was it was so delicious. <laughs> and I know that sounds really simple, but like I, I'm like this is the best thing I, I've ever ever had, and I love Thai food, so it was really. Um, it was amazing to just go and like be on the street too. Like the street food there is just insane, and you can just go to a vendor and get a green papaya salad right there, and it's like the best papaya salad you've ever had. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the best pad thai I've ever had was on the streets, and I don't usually eat street street food, but uh, but oh my gosh, it was it was fantastic. So I, I yeah. hear you there. What? And I know you're a runner too. Are you? Do you have any? Um, I mean, what's next for you? Do you have any plans to for to to run a marathon? And you know, on the professional side, what what's next for you? Um, well, I mean, I my um, I do triathlons, and so I've got my season's over for this year. But um, next year, I'm definitely starting to plan which ones I want to do. Um, and you know, professionally, I, I'm I'm really happy at Bold and Beautiful. I'm really mm-hmm. having a great time there. I'm thinking, you know, I love the way their character is going and and developing, and um, you know, I really can't wait to see what happens next. So, uh, stay tuned. Yeah, we we sure will. We sure will. I happen to I happen to love the the Katie Logan character. I think uh, and and I agree. But uh, Heather, thank you so much for for joining us today and just sharing um, with thank us you. and and uh, raising awareness about some very important issues. We appreciate your time. After the break, we'll unlock the secret to cross-cultural communication with communications consultant Larry Wino, next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Marcia Alexion, and I'm talking to you from Vancouver right now. I am originally from Brooklyn, New York. I've been living in Vancouver for about 20 years, and I love World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. So stop by WorldFootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, I'm Patricia Elsey from Mother's Restaurant, and I'm sitting here with the famous World Footprints radio people, Tanya and Ian, <laughs> and they love our cooking. She got a shrimp creole, he got a breakfast special with scrambled eggs with cheese, and Ian got the scrambled breakfast with sausage and hot sausage. 
and they're really enjoying the food. And I love them, and I hope they come back again. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Being a good global citizen is about building bridges between the cultural gaps. And in order to do that, you've got to build good relationships. To cultivate relationships with others, you have to develop great communication skills. So says our next guest, Larry Wino, is president of Larry Wino Consulting, a marketing communications firm based in New York. Larry recently spoke at the National Press Club here in Washington and joins us today to talk about communication and how we can bridge the cultural divide. Larry, welcome. Talk to us about why intercultural communication is so important. Well, when we're trying to deal with uh, folks who don't have the same background, culture, or even language uh, that we share, uh, we run into problems sometimes, and we sometimes think it's the other person's problem. Uh, basically, uh, everyone has a culture, and uh, we think of uh, foreign cultures as baggage the foreigners have and uh, make communication difficult. And we don't realize we have our own culture and our own way of looking at the world and making sense of things. We don't see it because just like the fish don't see water, it's all around us every day. So by being a little more sensitive to uh, the ground rules we have and other people have, uh, hopefully communicate and uh, avoid misunderstandings, which often lead to nosebleeds and, uh, and the black eyes. Now, you talk about those sensitivities and understanding the ground rules, uh, so to speak. Sometimes these things are pretty explicit, but in some instances they're not. And so how does one really master intercultural communication when the rules aren't necessarily known or that evident? Well, of course, uh, doing research is, is helpful, especially if you're going abroad and visiting. Uh, but also uh, trying to have a willing spirit to communicate with people who may not be uh, understanding what we're saying is a big step forward. It's, uh, it's an attitude we have that people can feel whether it's expressed in words or not. And uh, if you feel hostile to some group of people, it'll be communicated whether you know the language or not. Uh, and if you are making an attempt to communicate, even if you're doing uh, uh, hand gestures or something like that, the other person will will appreciate that and uh, try to help you uh, get the message across. And, and you know, um, I know so there's be sensitive to outside of you know just words and and even you know nuances within our verbal communication, but also our our body language as well as is what I hear you saying. Right, uh, communication is not just words. That's we're always uh, hung up on that and think if we just have the right dictionary definition of things uh, to translate, we'll be home free. Uh, but we, uh, we communicate in, in many different ways. We're always sending out signals and we're receiving signals. Uh, we may not be conscious of it, uh, but uh, it's going on all day long. Uh, even the suppression of a signal is a signal. You're just laying there, not moving, not breathing, big signal, dead. Mm. So dead people sending out signals. Uh, but uh, sometimes you hear people talk about body language, and uh, that's uh, how we punctuate sometimes uh, the messages we send out. And we can turn certain messages of, uh, 
of uh, compliments, uh, compliments into insults or vice versa, just the way we do things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's funny, speaking of body language, um, I part of my life, um, my young adult life, I uh, spent a lot of time with my um, uh, late godfather, who's Italian, and Italians speak with their hands, and they're very um, animated, and I speak with my hands. And I know, you know, when I watch other Italians, I, and I see them, I think, okay, you know, at first glance, they look really angry and really aggressive. Um, but, you know, then I look at myself when I'm talking, mean, even right now, you know, I'm moving my hands, and, and I know that that's been misinterpreted uh, some ways. And, uh, you know, and, and those are just those sensitivities people really need to, um, uh, you know, be more uh, aware of. And, and I don't know if you have any suggestions on what people can do and, and um, before they travel or even, you know, before they go to an event, the things that uh, they should be aware of or, or uh, considerate of. Well, they should not uh, automatically knee-jerk reaction uh, uh, take something that they perceive as uh, a hostile message as that. Uh, they need to stand back and see uh, what, what is this person saying. For example, uh, when you nod your head up and down, in our culture that means yes, but you may travel to some places where nodding your head up and down means no. Some places in, uh, in uh, Greece or Bulgaria might uh, do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you shouldn't necessarily be offended by that. Uh, also, language, being conscious of the different uh, nuances in language is helpful. I don't know if uh, this would be a good example, but uh, during, uh, after World War II, uh, Europe was in pretty bad straits. Uh, the uh, cities uh, were decimated by the bombing, and most people don't know it, but uh, there was a big uh, storm uh, that winter that uh, killed a lot of the crops. So in the spring, there was a lot of famine, especially in Germany. Mm-hmm. Well, the United States, the people in the United States on a grassroots, uh, grassroots basis, put together packages of food and clothing and took them down to their local post office and it was an international shipment, so they got a sticker for international uh, mail, and it had to declare what the, the uh, contents were. They just put down gift. And this was going along okay until the uh, word got back from Germany that uh, the Germans were looking at these packages and rolling their eyes, getting angry, and throwing them in the trash without ever opening them. Oh. And so the folks in the United States were getting hot o- under the collar, too. and. And uh, before this blew up into a big international incident, somebody who understood intercultural communication stepped in. And they pointed out that Americans don't uh, uh, speak more than one language, uh, English, and that they didn't know that when they wrote gift down, that was a four-letter word in German, meaning poison. Hmm. Oh. oh, dear. We're trying to send a uh, compassionate signal to the Germans but the Germans were downloading it in their system and coming up with a kind of a hostile message. And once that was explained, uh, everybody was okay. And uh, that's just one of the examples of how uh, things can get out of hand when we misinterpret and we don't stand back and say, well, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. With business going global 
in, in this era of uh, multinational companies and people being able to travel freely from continent to continent, there is certainly more contact with uh, different cultures, but it's really a business imperative to master some of the things that you're talking about. Talk to us about that within the context of, of uh, how we need to think about conducting our affairs and doing business when we're traveling. Well, that's, uh, that differs from section to section of the world. Uh, for example, uh, Americans uh, sometimes like to go over in a business situation and like to uh, get the deal done as fast as possible. In some of the Oriental countries, uh, uh, they want to learn more about you and they want to take time to get to know you and things like that which sometimes induces impatience on the American businessman who uh, just wants to get the thing signed, sealed, and delivered. Mm-hmm. That could be a, a source of, uh, of uh, irritation or conflict there. But uh, here again, do your research before you go over and try to find out how people do business, how they, uh, how they like to uh, 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 work with their business partners. You know that that's a great uh, a great example. I, I uh, recall a time when I uh, backpacked through uh, Southeast Asia with um, uh, an old friend of mine, and we studied. You know, we were visiting about eight countries during a five week period, and we read up a little bit about each of the countries. And in Japan, uh, particularly, we stayed with a family. Uh, who was involved with cross-cultural um, uh, exchanges, educational exchanges uh, between children. And, uh, and so we knew that we'd meet uh, principals of this organization. And what we, uh, what we discovered was that when a Japanese person passes you their business card, it's appropriate and expected to hold it in your hands for a little bit or put it on the table in front of you, and uh, and and look at it for some time. And you know, in in this country, and I do it I do it here too during meetings or when we're out, you know, in the DC scene, um, uh, you know, meeting people. You know, I'll take a business card, look at it, and then put it away in my purse. And it's not because I'm dismissing that person; it's because I don't want to lose the card. But it's uh, expected, you know, in in, in a culture like. Uh, Japan, and I think we would have been offensive at you know staying as guest of uh, uh, these the, you know our host and the people that she introduced us to. We ran the risk of offending um, her business partners. So um, that that's you know just a a, a lesson. Um, luckily, not a hard lesson we had to learn, but one we learned before we traveled. I know a lot of uh, businessmen I've talked to recently who have gone to China to. Uh find uh, new business deals there, uh, they know to bring a lot of business cards, but also to have uh, one side in English and one side in the language of uh, wherever they're going. Mm-hmm. So that's, in, that's important because uh, in, in that setting, uh, they, uh, they put a lot of value on that. Uh, there's also another, uh, when people come here to visit and do business over here uh, from uh, overseas, uh, we have to remind ourselves uh, not to uh, use slang when we're talking to them or idiosyncratic things that don't really equate to their uh, uh, study of our language. Also, 
when people come here and you're trying to talk to them uh, and they look puzzled at you, there's a natural instinct for us to speak louder and speak slower as if the people had cotton in their ears. Well, it, it's not so much that they can't hear you, it just could be that they don't understand what you're trying to say. And so that's something we have to guard against so that we don't look like we're talking down to people. Mm-hmm. People like to be uh, considered uh, uh, on the same level of the person talking. And uh, so that's another thing we have to remind ourselves. Larry, as, as we've uh, been conversing here about uh, all of these nuances, uh, you know, the, the expressiveness, the, the tacit communication, uh, certainly as, as one is more experienced and versed in uh, travel and uh, going abroad, they pick up these things, but for the person who may not be comfortable or, or, or hasn't traveled a great deal internationally, what sorts of tips and, and advice would you give someone who perhaps doesn't necessarily understand how the world might look at them as an American and what we would need to know in terms of how we look at the world and how we may come across to people in their country? Well, that's a big uh, question. Uh, of course, if you're going abroad for the first time or uh, you're going to a new place, uh, whatever you can do ahead of time to talk to people who have been there or read uh, some travel uh, books about the uh, country and their idiosyncrasies would help. Uh, but uh, I think really uh, when you go abroad, you need to be flexible. You need to be uh, um you need to be open to what's going on and not take offense immediately. In other words, uh, uh, you, you need to try to make uh, attempts to uh, reach the other person uh, through talking or, or gesturing or whatever. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's an attitude thing that I think is helpful. And people on the other side pick up these things mm-hmm. very, very quickly. Uh, uh, if you're trying to help, they're going to help you help them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, uh, if, if you show compassion to someone, uh, that's 90% of the uh, communication. Uh, there was an old Arab saying I just saw on the uh, television the other day. It says there are three things you can't hide. Uh, one is love, the other is smoke, and the other is a man sitting on a camel. that's a great one (laughs) I think think that it just says if if you really have a desire to help uh, to uh, listen I think listening is half of communication if you have a a desire in some way you'll get your message across and uh, uh, you shouldn't be fearful and not try or feel uh, uh, that you can't do it uh, or feel intimidated Mm mm-hmm that's an attitude thing. Larry, you, uh, when I uh, heard you at the National Press Club um, a few days ago, you told a story about the village of 100 people. I'm going to ask you to share that and also talk about the lessons we can learn from that story. Well, uh, a lot of people in the United States, when they look out at the rest of the world, uh, they think of it as being overrun by foreigners. And when you look at the statistics, uh, 95% of everyone living today on the face of the planet is what somebody might call un-American. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're anti-American, but un-American in the sense that uh, uh, they come from uh, uh, different uh, cultures, different countries. Now, if you were to take the population of the world today, which I don't know, what is it, over 6 billion, mm -hmm. and uh, reduce it down proportionally to a village of just 100, in that village of 100, 56 would be considered Asian. Over half of the uh, people in the village would be Asian. Uh, 21 would be European. 18 would be African. And when you get over to our part of the world, America, and by that I mean North America, only five of the people in the village would be American. Mm. And so uh, we have to realize that we're a minority uh, in terms of numbers in the world, and uh, we have to get along. We have to cooperate with the other folks in the world, and communication is the way to do it. Larry, as we wrap up here in this era of instant communication from Facebook to uh, cable television where bloviating and rhetoric and high-intensity language really seems to be the flavor du jour, when you contrast that to how things were a generation ago or two before we had all of this where people wrote letters, people spoke over the phones without having a camera peering at them at the same time, Communication was different, but I want to get a sense from, uh, from you how the technology, how the environment we're in uh, is posing challenges for having positive intercultural communication. Well, when I was growing up, uh, the only cell phones that were existent were in uh, prison cells, but uh, <laughs> after that, uh, Today, we have what I would call instant global communications, where uh, around the world, a minor official in, uh, in uh, Siberia could be assassinated right now, and within 20 minutes, we'll hear about it. And within another 20 minutes, uh, we'll probably see streaming video of it from some guy who had a cell phone there at the time and captured the picture. So uh, we're getting instant data communicated around the world. Unfortunately, we're not getting instant uh, analysis or instant wisdom about how to piece that information together. Hmm. And that's the big thing. Uh, in, in the old days, uh, when uh, somebody had to write a, a big document, uh, for example, that, uh, the Gettysburg Address, uh, Lincoln could be on the train for many hours and uh, in a couple of days to think about this. Now, if something happens, it's got to be uh, done within a few minutes and reported uh, immediately. And sometimes we don't have the time to uh, think things through, and, and we're befuddled by all this data that's hitting us all the time. Well, Larry Wino of Wino Consulting, a marketing communication firm that's helping us communicate interculturally, we thank you for being with us today on World Footprints. Thank you very much, and for all of your interest in this topic. It's very relevant today. We hope you enjoyed our show today, and we always look forward to spending time with you every week, and certainly every day from our social networks on Facebook, Twitter, and others, and you can find them all from our website at worldfootprints.com. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter whilst there, or shop about in the uh, travel store and, and check out the daily travel deals in our travel portal. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. 
West Lake Louise, it's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.